John chapter 13, page 1673, in the Bench Bibles, beginning the reading at verse 1. John 13, reading as follows. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father. And then our text, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. These are the very words of God. We're entering the Lenten season, which began this past midweek. The older I get, the more I insist on sort of emphasizing the church year and not neglecting it. So today in the morning, we're focusing on Lent. Lent from the old English word lengthen means lengthening days, but the season is not so much about the days, but about the suffering of Christ ending in his death. And so therefore in Lent, we try to put a new focus, a renewed or emphasized focus on Jesus last week, his passion, his suffering. And his suffering, of course, is for sin. So often people try to become more aware of their sin, sometimes giving up pleasures 
with purpose of noting that the lack of pleasures is a kind of suffering and sin is involved and causes suffering and so therefore by giving up something we focus attention also positively on Jesus. Enough said about the season, but what we're going to do here, John 13, beginning at verse 1 very briefly and looking at the last part of it. It was just before the Passover feast. I feel like we're standing on holy ground here. And then Jesus knew that the time had come. And there are a few more references to knowing that in, in the verses we read. Verse 3, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. He knew who his betrayer would be. Jesus shares in God's all-knowingness. We, we have here more than just premonition, don't we? I looked up the word bite as I was preparing this sermon. There's bytes, which is a bit of memory in a memory system for computers or phones or whatever. Kilobyte means a thousand. And the article referred to bigger things. The biggest was a votabyte, which is one plus 24 zeros. <laughs> That's a lot of memory. God knows even more than that memory will hold. In fact, uh, a votabyte is small compared to what God knows. Now, if you ask me, did Jesus know everything the Father knew? I guess I'd have to say no, because he said the Father only knows the time of the second coming. But to delve into that is going to take time I don't want with the last part of the verse. Jesus knew he would suffer. He knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then the next words are so easily passed over, but I want to open them up to you today. Having loved his own who were in the world, he, and the literal is, loved them to the last, the footnote, but the NIV translation here does have a secondary meaning that's a correct meaning of the Greek words. He now showed them the full extent of his love, will end there. Being retired, I hear more sermons than I used to, and I just love it if the pastor opens up a Bible verse. I think I can sort of do that for you. I'd love you to go on your way noticing this verse, which is so easily passed over to get to the illustration of it, the washing of the disciples' feet. I'd love to have you from this verse, maybe re, yeah, receive more information if you need transformation in your life. But most of all this morning, appreciation. John was there with Jesus on Jesus' last day, which begins uh, in John 13. And as John looks back, I'd almost expect him to say, something a little different than what he says. I'd expect him to say something like, Jesus was sad as his death approached, or maybe even something a little different yet. 
Jesus was anxious as death approached. But he doesn't say any of those things. What he remembers the many years later when he writes the gospel is having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's just go through John 13, 1b here, sort of word by word. We have here something of a past, present, future thing. Having loved, he now showed them, or he loved them, and to the end. And notice that the main word is the word love. Okay. Looking now, word by word, phrase by phrase, having loved his own who were in the world. We probably have to focus on that word love a little bit. For one thing, the Greek language uses the word much better than English. In Greek, there are four separate words that in English kind of are all mixed together. There is eros, which is erotic or sexual love, as we might say. To the Greek, eros was not really love. And then there's a second word, storge, which means you do me a favor, I'll do you one, tit for tat. Or in today's colloquial, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's not what being referred to in John 13 at the beginning of the chapter here. The third word for love is philos, brotherly love, uh, friendship love. The city of Philadelphia means literally the city of brotherly love. It's not quite that which is referred to either. The word love here is the word agapao or agape, which means God's special love for his own. You need to feel that to appreciate the verse. In the Old Testament, there's a special word that's hard to even translate into English. No English word really grabs it. It's kesed. The translations usually say loving kindness or tender mercy. That's God's love for his own. And then in the New Testament, kesed becomes agape. You may have heard of agape love. Maybe the best way to describe it is to quote a verse or two from the Bible where that kind of love is referred to. Let me give you just one from Romans chapter 5 here, verses 6 to 8. The apostle writes, You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the meaning of the word love here. Now, in English, we got a problem using that word love and misusing and then abusing it. I'll just give you one example. If you watch 
television lately. General Motors as an advertisement of pretty women looking at new cars. Brought a little car here to sort of illustrate. And the women put their arms around the new GM model cars and say, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. Have you ever heard that one? And these get uh, broadcast all over the place. I hardly watch television, and I've seen that advertisement many times. The, the, the purpose of the advertisement is to get to love, to, to make you feel love for a machine with a motor, and of course then go out and buy it. And that machine with a motor is going to be in 20 years, maybe less, a hunk of junk in a junkyard. That's how the word love gets used in our secular culture. John 13 is talking about something far above and beyond the way we were use the word love when it mentions love. Having loved, genuine care, and concern for his own. I've read of soldiers in the military who jump on napalm bomb, bombs and that sort of thing, take the brunt of the bomb to save those who are near them from dying with them. That's sort of the thing that's being referred to here. And that's as close as I can come in English, having loved his own who were in the world. But now, his own. His own were his 12 disciples, of course. All of them were cowards. He loved them anyway. One of them was a betrayer. I think if the betrayer had repented, Jesus would have loved him too because I don't read that betrayal as the unforgivable sin. One of them, Peter, was a denier, and he did repent and was forgiven, having loved that motley crew of 12 disciples. And then this is important. You too. In John 17, Jesus will pray, I pray not only for my own, but all who come to me through them. Now, dear friends, here's who you are in sin to bring out one of the things that Lent should bring out in us. We're children of Adam and Eve. And the sin that's passed down to us is both something we imitate and is imputed to us. We're great imitators of sin, imitation, imputation, counted legally as applying to us. Some people don't like that we have imputation through Adam. I guess they think they know better than God who made Adam our covenant representative. But they really deal with imputation all the time. You elect a democratic governor, his governorship is imputed to you. You have to pay taxes, they're imputed to you. Imputation is done all over the place. I wish they wouldn't say God is unfair by doing it. But even more so, and here's what you need to see to really appreciate John 13, verse 1. If Adam's sin were not imputed to us, Christ's 
Righteousness couldn't be imputed either. Really, imputation is the best thing in the world for you when you consider that Christ is the second Adam. I'll get to that a little later, but I want to mention it here. Having loved his own, that's you too, through the disciples' testimony, and you are a great imitator of sin, and so am I, imputed to us Adam's sin. We're not born neutral. We're born inclined to all sin. Having loved people like that is what John remembers about that last evening in Christ's life. Wow. Having loved his own who were in the world, and then he loved them. Genuine care and concern for them. Jesus loves even me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Jesus will give a, an example of that love. Jesus is the up one. The disciples are the down ones, the servants. You'd expect they'd wash his feet. He washes their feet. Don't want to talk a lot more about the example, but uh, Jesus does show that he's going to stoop to show love to them. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. And then that third phrase, I wanted time to deal with it and I have it. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them literally to the end. But the Greek phrase to the end translates by way of implication or secondary meaning, to the full extent, uttermost, as much as possible. In the version you have in your church benches, they give that secondary meaning, and by doing so, they actually show more than just giving the literal meaning. But let me do this first. Bring out what it means he loved them to the end of his life. Here's how it worked. That last night, Jesus showed his love to his disciples and to you by servant's work, washing feet. He's going to serve the rest of his hours. And then he showed his love by praying one of the most beautiful prayers you can imagine, the so-called high priestly prayer for his disciples and for you. And of course, we should be people of prayer too. Our catechism calls prayer the chief part of our thankfulness. Prayer is about relationship to God. Jesus prayed for his disciples. And he also that evening changed Passover to communion. Passover by New Testament times had an empty seat, the so-called Messiah seat. And Jesus said in that last Passover first communion, I am the rightful occupant of that Messiah seat. He initiated communion 
in place of Passover. These are all loving acts. And then when you go forward, those last, well, go back actually the last few days, there were parables and all of that. But thinking just of these last 24 hours of Jesus' life, his love to the end, he showed his love by going to Gethsemane there and in the horror he knew would come to him in the crucifixion, he prayed, if possible, remove this from me, but not my will, God, Father, yours be done. He showed love with that prayer. And Father and Son both showed love to you by not removing what was to come. And then he showed love to the end in that awful arrest by these Jewish religious leaders. The cruel, unfair trial before the religious leaders. He showed love through the trumped-up trial before Pontius Pilate, in which Pilate recognized Jesus was really innocent. He continued to show love when Pilate sentenced him, Jesus, to death when Jesus was the innocent one. He continued to show love through the 40 minus one lashes, the whipping that tore open the back. He continued to show his love as he carried his cross to the place of crucifixion, having received the worst sentence possible, capital punishment, and that by the worst means possible. You know, we know the story so well. I'm telling you what you know. I know that. But again, I want you to appreciate. He showed his love through one act after another, carrying that cross till he stumbled. And then he showed his love by allowing himself to be nailed to that cross. He showed his love when he was lifted up on that cross. Remember, he could have said, I could call legions of angels to get me down from here. He didn't do that. He showed his love during all of that terrible agony on the cross, the hellish agony. And he showed love in everything he said there, saying one, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then in that fourth saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I just want to say that that quotation from Psalm 22 is not Jesus losing faith. It's Jesus who knew the whole psalm. Those Hebrew people knew their Bible saying, I'm suffering as if you forsook me, and yet at the end of Psalm 22 is one of the strongest statements of faith everywhere. The cry of dereliction is also a cry of dependency on God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And then, after I thirst, it is finished. The work of loving to the uttermost that we'll get to soon is finished. It's done. It's all done. He loved to that point. And then 
Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And the good news of that last saying from the cross is we too, who are in Christ, when we draw our last breath, go into the hands of God, the heaven of God, because Jesus loved us to the end. Appreciate it. Now, the other thing yet in this text, and the thing our version brings out, he loved them not only to the end of his life, but he loved them to the highest extent possible, to the uttermost. Wow. What does that mean? The one word we use in English to describe it is atonement. At one with God. Loving to the highest means something like this. This is as good as I can say it. First of all, he showed his love by enduring the wrath of God against sin. Now, God hates sin. God gets angry with sin. Very disappointed when I hear preachers or church members saying God's not angry with sin. He is. Remember Leviticus 16, the scapegoat and the sacrificial goat. The scapegoat, the priest laid his hands on the scapegoat, drove that goat out into the wilderness there to thirst and die. A picture of God's anger against sin and what God's people deserve in their sin. And then the sacrificial goat killed, blood put in the Holy of Holies, again showing in picture form that God is so angry with sin that sin requires death, blood sacrifice. Well, Jesus, in the atonement on the cross, showed his love for us in dealing with God's righteous anger against sin. And God has a right to be angry about sin. God's anger for sin was placed on Jesus. And that leads to the second thing, sort of. Atonement has an up dimension. It also has a back dimension. Jesus is the second Adam. I referred to that a few minutes ago. In the first Adam, well, we imitate sin all around, but even worse, sin is imputed to us. Jesus is the second Adam. And so those who are Believers in Jesus don't have to be in Adam anymore. They are in Christ. And Jesus, as a second Adam, we who are Christians want to imitate him. We have a new nature. We can imitate him with what's right. And more important, his righteousness is imputed to us. And therefore, we're at one with God. Again, wow. Having loved his own, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved us enough to bear the anger of God against sin in our place, so we don't have to go to hell. To be the second Adam, 
so that we who are in, in him are on our way to heaven. And then there's a third dimension. Having loved his own also has a down dimension. He won the victory over the devil. The early church was especially cognizant of the fact that Jesus won a victory over Satan in his atonement. Maybe today we're not so much so. We're not so well aware of the devil. The devil is very real. And the devil is stronger than we are. You don't just go around and say, I'm going to overcome the devil. You don't have the strength to do it. But Jesus did. On the cross, he overcame the devil. Now, when you and I are tempted by the devil, the thing we should do is say, thus saith the Lord. That's what Jesus said in the wilderness when the devil came to him. And we can say, get thee behind me, Satan. And if you want, you can say, in the name of power and the name and the power of Jesus Christ, devil, depart from me. And you can pray for victory over the devil. Ephesians 6, the armor of God, the two offensive weapons. The word of God and all prayer. So that's how you fight the devil. But Jesus won the decisive victory over the devil so that when he comes at you, he's no winner. He's a loser to Jesus, and you can use the means. But what I want you to see this morning is Jesus loved his own so much, he also won the victory over the devil on their behalf. And then also a fourth dimension. The first was up, Jesus endured the wrath of God, Back, he's the second Adam. Third, down, he's victory over the devil. And then fourth, he's our example too. It's sort of highlighted in the foot washing. But you have to be a little careful not to say Jesus is only our example. He's also our example. There are always people who are tempted to deny the most important parts of the atonement by saying Jesus is our example. Example of good deeds, example of positive thinking, example of this, that, and the next thing. He is also our example, but not only so. And so therefore, dear friends, as we begin the Lenten season, few things in summary. You'll notice the lengthening of days, and some of us really appreciate that. You're in a season in which I hope you have a renewed appreciation for Jesus' suffering. And also that Jesus' suffering came about because of sin. Hope you'll be aware of your sinful nature, not as an end in itself. I don't want you just to grovel in sin. We don't ever have to do that but aware of your sin in order to appreciate Jesus' saving work the more. And maybe most of all, I hope that you will feel Jesus' love for you in all that he did his last week and especially in John 13. If you do, and you hear something about a car and an advertisement. I love it, I love it, I love it. 
or if you like to watch HGCTV, I love this remodeling job in the house, you will realize that God's love is just so much above and beyond the way the word love is used in our language today. You'll appreciate that. Now to conclude, hopefully the information in John 13, 1b impresses itself upon you deeply today and for the rest of your life. And if you need transformation, either because you've never been a Christian or need to rid your life of some sin and focus anew on following God's ways, that you, I hope Jesus' love for you, will incline you away from sin, transform you to following anew. And most of all, I hope John 13, 1b will make you appreciate the more what God has done for you through Jesus Christ in the incarnation, but especially in the cross and its atonement. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Gospel of John today and for John's memory as he looks back from that first evening that was Jesus' last evening to his account of that last evening in Jesus' life so many years later. Thank you for your word for your work in us through the word. Go with us in this Lenten season. For Jesus' sake, amen.